like our little gym? It's fabulous. I like stepping back in time. This is the America we've been looking for. And no zoning laws. All right, Charles, we're back. And uh, we're on the road right now. We're recording in a moving vehicle. We're not driving. We're passengers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we've got a long trip ahead of us. I, what is it, like 12 plus more hours or something? Or like, what, like nine hours left? Uh, are we including tomorrow's travel into this? Just today, yeah. We're going to be on the road until like 10 o'clock tonight. Yes, we're going to be here for 10 o'clock. <laughs> this is a special edition of the Northern Overexposure podcast episode. We are on the road. We're going through Texas right now, the heartland of America, <laughs> coming to you live. Yeah, and I figured, you know, we'd be, we're going to be hanging out a bit this weekend as we're recording, uh, you know, for a few days. And we're going to be in, a, in the car for at least like, I don't know what the sum total would be, but we're going to be in the car for over 24 hours, I'm sure, throughout, you know, driving and heading back. I think cumulatively, <laughs> is it not 42 hours? Yeah, it's something like, something disgusting like that. So, I mean, perfect time to record a podcast. Actually, we just watched, you know, an episode of Northern Exposure on my laptop with like a headphone splitter so we could both listen at the same time. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're hopping in to Sons of the Tundra. I was mistaken because I thought this was this episode would not have Joel, but there is a surprise scene with Joel in it. Right, right, right. We got one little scene with Joel in it. And I just got to say, like, this is uh, maybe one of the best episodes for us to watch because okay. the biggest thing of this episode is that we get an introduction to, I am assuming that, you know, they're going to become cast, two new people rolling into town. Yes, we got uh, Phil Capra, Dr. Phil Capra and his wife, Michelle Capra. Michelle Shaudowski Capra. She introduces herself, I think, to Walt at, at a certain point. Um, what do you think of these? Well, uh, let, let's let's get to this. I guess we should uh, up front really quickly just go through the credits. Of course, this is Northern Exposure. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. Ooh, that was a train. Yeah, we were just passing a train. We're going to keep that. We're going to keep it that in there. Brings authenticity. For the record, we're beating the train. We're like ahead of the train. It's behind us now. You got the nice Doppler effect. <laughs> um, so, yes, this is the Northern Overexposure podcast. My name is Lee. Charles, you're here with me. And uh, we're going to talk about the 1990s CBS television series Northern Exposure, specifically in season six now, the final season. We've got the episode Sons of the Tundra, as we mentioned. This is the ninth episode in season six. It was directed by Michael Vittis, who was directed uh, in the past for Northern Exposure. Writers were Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. I don't know about that. Did I don't it? know about yeah. that. Yeah, because we checked IMDb. I think, I think it's Jeff Melvoin. Jeff Melvoin. Wow. Yeah, Melvoin-y. So, let me, uh, actually, we have the episode, so stand by. Charles, you are right. IMDb is correct. It is Jeff Melvoin who wrote this episode and, of course, uh, some of our favorite episodes in the past. Wikipedia says Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. Of course, they're probably credited as uh, executive producers mm. for this episode. But um, Jeff Malvoin on the uh, on the screenplay here. Uh, teleplay, I guess you could say. The air date, November 28th, 1994. And um, I guess somewhat fittingly, because they do mention Thanksgiving at least once or twice in this episode. Uh, though this would have, I guess, November 28th would have probably been probably after Thanksgiving in 94 but maybe it was uh maybe it was just right around Thanksgiving. Yeah, just right around. I got a 
got a comment a little bit. We're like passing yeah. over like a very beautiful vista. Very wide view of <laughs> this Texas. Is, yeah, Charles, this is great uh, for great radio. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is NPR. <laughs> all right, now let's just, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try not to uh, get too distracted with our surroundings, but if something interesting does happen, we have to report it. Uh, someone just cut us off, so that <laughs> that, that was kind of happened. interesting. I mean, this, it's been a long trip. You know, there's a lot of just like barren landscape sometimes. So when exciting things happen, it really catches your eyes. Um, all right, well, let's let us jump in. Well, we got three plot lines. We obviously okay. have Phil and Michelle coming into town. We have Ed's plot line, and we have Hollings. Where should we start off? Hmm. Well, it seems like that Phil and Michelle's is the biggest one. Let's, should we start with that since they're new? Yeah. Okay. Let's go with that. New characters, because we're, we're kind of starting to talk about that before uh, we hopped into the opening credits here for the ti- uh, for the episode. But we've got some new additions. What are your thoughts on the new characters overall? Not just in the beginning, but just like Michelle, Philip Capra. What do you think about... Because I'm just going to say they're they're here to stay, at least for, for now. Who is the actor that is playing Phil? Paul Provenza. And uh, he is a working actor. I guess, let's see, the last big credit that I can find was maybe 2010, around that time. He's also a director, a producer, so he works often in film. I found it interesting on his uh, Wikipedia page, it says he's a television presenter, actor, radio panelist, stand-up comedian, filmmaker, and skeptic. Skeptic is part of his uh, biography there in Wikipedia, I guess meaning religious skepticism. That, that's a career? Uh, maybe not a career, but just like that's his... It's just something about him, you know. Uh, th- it doesn't have to be his career. It just describes him. He's a famous skeptic. Or he, maybe that's what's... I don't know if he's a famous skeptic because I hadn't heard of Paul Provenza the skeptic. But maybe that's uh, an important aspect of his biography, I guess. But I was wondering, ha- had you recognized him in other roles? You said... No, I've never recognized him in any other role. I do recognize Michelle, though. Michelle mm-hmm. plays Helen Santos in The West Wing, seasons mm. six and seven. You know, uh, Paul plays someone in the West Wing. I, I didn't get, I didn't recognize oh, it until I saw his credits. I think credits. he actually does. I remember seeing that. It says it was, says it was uh, in the, it doesn't say what episode, it just says 2000. So whatever season that was in the West Wing, but he plays a character called Steve Onorato. That no is, I want to say, a member of the Elk Club that comes into Sam Seaborn's office. Uh, and he's there with Ty Burrell. Interesting. Many people know him for the Modern Family. Those two are together. I want to say it's that. Please tell me I'm right. It's in the episode Let Bartlett Be Bartlett and uh, Mandatory Minimums. Um, it doesn't say what happens in those episodes. I can't remember. But we'll just leave it at that. I don't have, a, I don't have time to... <laughs> um, oh, actually. No, it's too much. I don't want to dig too, too deep. But to stay focused on Northern Exposure. He's our new doctor... Um, Perhaps named after the director, Frank Capra, someone uh, early in the episode, I think it's Maurice is talking with uh, Gil Lafleur. No, or maybe it's Walt, I can't remember, but there's like, he's like, like the director? He's like, yeah, Frank Capra or something like that. Yeah, we get a lot of those expository dialogue right there. Where they're like, like the director? Yeah, exactly like the director. And then they say like, you're Phil Capra, you're X, Y, and Z. And they list all of his accomplishments, they're given all of his backgrounds. And he does the same exact thing to his wife and says like, you're an esteemed journalist that it's written yes, for all yeah. of these. So they're doing that on purpose in order to establish the characters. It's a shortcut. We get it. Yeah, just like writers trying to quickly give some information. It's interesting. So this first scene with Michelle and Phil, um, they're driving, I guess, driving to Sicily. They've got, like, we start by seeing their 
vehicle with like a bunch of, it's not necessarily luggage, it's something is tarped on top of the vehicle, so probably luggage, whatever they're bringing with them. And uh, we got the song Going Up the Country by Canned Heat. It's playing on the radio until Chris chimes in on the horn and sort of uh, makes a statement that Phil Capra is going to be coming into town, a new doctor from L.A. And, um, you know, lists off, as you said, lists off some accolades, uh, but fails to mention anything about his wife. I guess he says his lovely wife, Michelle. And Phil's like, well, I guess they didn't, you know, that, that was like, that was a wonderful introduction. And then Michelle's silent for a little bit. And he says, well, you know, I guess they didn't really say anything about you, but, uh, you know, they, they, they failed to mention you're this accomplished journalist. And she's like, oh, quit it, honey. Like I wrote a call, like a sunscreen column or something in the side of this article. But she is a, that's her job as a journalist. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about that yesterday because I get Costco monthly magazines. <laughs> and in those Costco monthly magazines, there are always these articles that are written about random subjects and in them that uh -huh. aren't very long, but they're informative. And they talk about things like how to get your garden prepared for spring from winter yeah. or like mezcal. Like, what is that about? <laughs> is that similar to tequila or something like that? And I was wondering, I was like, who are these writers? Are they freelancers? Are yeah. they professionals? And I, I guess in a way they're journalists, just like Michelle is. Yeah. Because she is doing the same exact thing. Yeah, she seems like a freelancer, and then later Maurice will offer her a job uh, at the Sicily... What is the name of their paper? I wrote it down. The Sicily News and World Telegram, uh, which seems great. You know, she'll get a, she'll fit right in, uh, though we don't see her write anything for that in this episode. She still has some, like, outstanding projects that she's got to finish on her Macintosh computer. Um, but anyway... Oh, go ahead. You I was going to say, wait, before we even get yeah. know, toward that plot line right there, there is one important yes. thing that happens to them. It ties the episode all together. It is when they almost hit a moose. Yes, as they're approaching, like driving, they slam the brakes and there's this big old, like old moose. It looks older than the, uh, than Morty the moose in the main title sequence. Maybe it's the same moose, but I, I doubt it. I don't know. I guess we could, um, could ask Ann Gordon and figure out. They almost hit this huge moose um, that's about it. I mean, we love seeing, we love seeing meese, the, you know, we love seeing mooses in uh, Northern Exposure. It doesn't happen as often as you would think. I guess every, every theme song we see it, but. But it's like a, it's a good motif that spreads throughout the episode is man versus nature. Ah, I like yeah. that. Their Very first nice. introduction to Sicily is a moose. And throughout the episode, at least for Michelle's character, we're going to see various animals go against her and her path. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very good. Um, also, this another thing that this could tie into is uh, the fact that Chris on the radio doesn't really say too much about Michelle, maybe ties into the exclusivity um, that is just, as Chris will later put it, it's kind of hardwired into our culture. Um, this sort of like man first, because we see this like exclusivity with the Sons of the Tundra men's club and uh, sort of discrimination against women, you could call it that, like they, they, they won't allow Shelly to come. So in another way, maybe Chris is, without knowing it, hardwired to uh, forget to mention anything about Michelle. Mm, that's a really, really good point right there. Well, anyway, let's go on to the next scene with Michelle and Philip. And I've got notes here. I kind of wrote them down as we were watching. Handwritten notes, let's see. The next time we see Phil or Michelle, I think it's the scene with uh, Marilyn in Joel's old office. I guess Phil's new office now. Um, 
I don't fully remember. I think it's just like a quick introduction there. Maurice scoops them up and starts walking them around the town. And uh, he has some interesting, Maurice says some interesting things here. He's, he mentions how Sicily has no zoning laws. You can really do whatever you want here. It's and good. It's he, good. <laughs> he also pitches this idea. I guess he's pitching it to, to Phil. Like this idea that people could come to Sicily for their colonoscopy and then like also make it like a fishing retreat. So it's like a, a colonoscopy vacation center. Like he wants to turn Sicily into this uh, medical slash resort yeah, escape. I, I, I want to say he uses that example because Phil is internal medicine mm. gastronomy. Oh, is he? I, I actually didn't catch that. Inti- I can't say that word. Gastroenterology or something? Yeah, I think it's GI that GI doctor? I didn't even catch that. That's very cool. Uh, he also, you know, he, in this scene, offers the job to Michelle, you know, the working at the Sicily News and World Telegram. And he gives them uh, a welcoming bottle of 1961 Lafitte Rothschild wine. They, this is this. It's bottle, always that wine. Yeah, it's always that name on the bottle of wine. Um, I think that's the end of that scene. And then just quickly moving forward, the next time we see them is when they are moving into their new cabin, their new house in Sicily, which happens to be Joel's old cabin in Sicily. Yeah, it's a little run down. It's a little rummagey right there. I'm trying to remember. New York Times. It's got Joel's Sunday New it's York Times these, laying like, around. Stacks, yeah. And uh, the electricity there is a little spotty. It's kind of dirty. Just all around, not a great place. I'm assuming it's because Joel left the place and no one has been tending to it for a couple weeks. Yeah, I think it's that. And it's that on top of um, this is just way more rustic than the cappers are used to because, you know, I guess they're from like. Los Angeles and Michelle seems to be a little more, well, I guess I could say Phil is more excited by the idea of Alaska, whereas Michelle is um, intrigued, but maybe a little more tepid on it. Right. Well, they both came because they wanted an adventure. Right. They were like, Something let's new. go do my uh, resident. It's residency, right? I guess. No, I don't know. Honestly, He's not doing his. F- no, no, it's not his residency. He's a doctor because he had a practice. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to think yeah, of. It's just, not. Just like, well, his. According to Chris on the radio, the practice went belly up. And uh, Phil, when he's listening to the radio, is like, no, that's not true. Like, we decided to, like, mm. dissolve it or whatever. Okay. So I don't know what happened. Maybe yeah, we'll okay. figure so he's ahead of his career right. than Joel is. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so, you know, they're like, are you sure there's no place nicer? And um, Maggie is there showing them around. She says, no place nicer than this. Um, but maybe it's also, you know, it could be the rustic nature of this cabin, but it could also be just, as you're saying, Charles, no one has been here since Joel vacated. And uh, technically, I guess Joel would have moved out to move in with Maggie before he went upriver. At one point, Michelle asks Maggie, what exactly happened to Dr. Fleischman? Because uh, Maurice was kind of being dodgy on the subject. And Maggie informs them, that he's, you know, sort of went on a sabbatical. So Michelle's like, wait, he's coming back? He's like, no, I don't think so. Uh, he went up river. Um, she asks Maggie, did you know him well? And she says, kind of, sort of, yes. Like, it's kind of a, a drawn-out answer, but kind of hard to describe, I guess, <laughs> to get into it. I guess there's a lot that Maggie could get into. This, I, th- I wrote down that this felt like a scene that would happen, like, at the beginning of season seven or something, you know, where it's like, there's a cliff nowadays, like there's this cliffhanger and a character like leaves and then 
the beginning of the next season or maybe there's a season break and then like a you know at the beginning of this it's like we're talking about this character Joel he's still very much felt in this series even though he's not there and then maybe we're going to build to this moment when he returns you know yeah i mean skipping forward a little bit i uh-huh. think that had they written this episode maybe two or three more since last yeah yeah the last episode we just saw cuz realistically if i'm remembering this correctly last week we have upriver Joel decides to be one with the other people. <laughs> Men and Ash, yeah. Yes, he just leaves. And then the next week, when you tune in the Northern Exposure, for them in the town of Sicily, it's been weeks and maybe even months. For us, it's been one week. Right. I don't think we've had enough time to process that Joel has left. That's true. Yeah, I agree to that. And, and you know, we talked about this before on the podcast, but we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, but there is a, a point in this season six where they change the you know, the premiere, the broadcast, the night that they show Northern Exposure, it goes from being Monday night, which it has always been, to I think Wednesday night, something like that. So they do get a programming change, but that, you know, I was just saying like maybe this this kind of episode could happen at that moment when everything's like shifting around, but perhaps it comes a little too soon. But let's keep talking about Michelle and Phil. You mentioned that this episode maybe has a lot of man versus nature. We get Michelle home alone, uh, and she hears like some clattering, maybe in the kitchen or around out, outside the house, in the backyard. She walks outside and she finds Walt. Walt the Trapper, he's walking up to her house with a bag of rice. And he says, is this your bag of rice? And she says, yes. Um, he, he points out it was probably like a mole or a marmot that got into her house. Uh, she's like, wait, in my house, like all over, they can go anywhere. He says, word to the wise, steel wool in all cracks and crevices. Now, I guess Walt would know, being a, a hunter or a trapper, uh, would understand these these vermin. So uh, they've got a problem, I guess, uh, throughout this episode, Michelle will frequently encounter some sort of animal that is trying to disrupt her habitation specifically. Right, nature is interfering with her trying to simulate into Sicily right here. Um, do you want to list all the animals, or do you want to go down the path linearly? Uh, let's just go. Yeah, let's just go in order because I think it's going to be over before we know it. Let's see. I've got the. I've like written down these handwritten notes, so I'm flipping through the pages. Um, there's another scene uh, where we get. We really, if it hasn't been verbalized yet, this is when it happens. Phil and uh, Michelle are home at night, and. Um, they're kind of expressing, you know, Phil is saying, it's so wonderful. I think he had just seen Ed. Oh, we should talk about that. Um, well, yeah, we can, but it's like kind of Ed's own thing. Though. Oh, yeah, let's keep it, let's keep it to Ed's plot line. So, so Phil has just seen Ed in his office. Uh, it's like one of the, I guess maybe the first patient he's treated. I don't know. Um, but he's telling Michelle, man, it's so wonderful here. I get these interesting patients. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, we can't talk about him in the sense that, like, he was their first person. Yeah. What, right? I don't know. Well, I mean, but no, he wasn't. Maryland. He wasn't. He was yeah. uh, Phil's first patient. You're right. He may be. I think he might have been Phil's first patient. I don't he know is. if that's for sure, but definitely, uh, yeah, it feels, that feels right, I think. But we're going to talk about that when we get to Ed's because that's very integral to Ed's plot line. But now he's telling Michelle such interesting patients, and uh, he says something like, I feel like uh, I've been looking at the world through my sigmoidoscope or something. <laughs> he says something like that. <laughs> There's so much to the world than that. 
There's so much more. Well, he says there's so much more to the world of medicine than that. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. The world of medicine, I see. And uh, I wrote down, I don't know if she says this immediately, but Michelle's like, maybe we should get a gun because she's worried about all these uh, animals coming into the house. And uh, this is, as I was saying, if uh, we haven't verbalized it yet, this is the moment when Phil uh, kind of expresses his love for this place, the people here, uh, how it's affecting his career. Like he gets to approach medicine in a whole new way, potentially, you know, with this new patient, Ed. Um, and Michelle seems very um, uncertain about, you know, being here. And I, I almost wonder, I can't remember if they do, maybe you remember Charles in this scene, if um, they sort of talk it out and they're like, well, what do you think? Should we stick around? Cause they do it later. I think that's later. Okay. I, on this one, Phil says, you know, what about the silence right here? You can never hear this yeah. in Los Angeles. You'll never hear this kind of silence in LA. That's true. Um, so continuing forward with Michelle and Capra, Michelle and Phil, we get to see Phil Capra attending the Sons of the Tundra club. I don't even know if it's a special event, uh, but we can get into this uh, more specifically with hauling because there's definitely a lot of hauling in this scene, but we kind of jump around. Uh, if we're just going to focus on Phil here, He's sitting down, he even later comes back and he's like, I kind of got, it was surreal, it was a weird experience. I was kind of stuck with this trapper, Walt, the whole time just talking to him. Uh, Cause he's sitting down here and Walt goes on and on about, um, now I don't, I didn't understand, maybe you caught this Charles, but I don't know if it's a uh, prerequisite for being a member of the Sons of the Tundra or if this is a prerequisite for specifically this like higher order of some of the members in the club something that Walt calls the Order of the Sedge. Um, sedge, I, I looked up as this kind of like grass plant. I didn't know, I think I'd seen them before, I just didn't know the name for it. But um, the prerequisite being, you have to like hunt an animal, like 300 pounds or more or something. Roadkill doesn't count, whales don't count. So did you catch that? Is that a prerequisite to be a member of the Sons of the Tundra? Or is that like his specific like Order of the Sedge? I think it's his specific order. Gotcha. They go on and on talking about very, uh, I guess what you would call like wild man sort of stuff. Is that what you would call it? Like naturalistic lifestyle. And um, Phil comments on this motto, who actually I don't think I've heard anyone say yet, but he says, what's the motto? My, my Latin's a little uh, rusty, but apparently it's a motto for Sons of the Tundra. Glacius fragenda est. He says, uh, is it something about breaking ice? And Walt says, around here, it means make mine a double. But uh, do you have a guess on, do, you, do those words sound familiar to you? Um, I think that it is subtext, is it not? Breaking the ice for these two characters? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I meant like the literal translation. It actually, oh, I, have no idea. <laughs> I think Phil was right on, on, on the money because I just Google translated it. It says the ice must be broken. Mm. So something about breaking the ice. That's all I got from that scene. Do you remember anything in the uh, Sons of the Tundra Club? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that's about it for him. Yeah, that's all I had for that scene. I think the next scene we get, it's uh, with Michelle, and she has some computer problems. She's, like, trying to write up some article. I paused it whenever we were watching Charles because I was trying to read what she was typing, and it was something about, well, she says it's about some gift shop or something like that, and the words that she's writing there is something about, um, like, finding these, like, interesting uh, sculptures or like knickknacks or almost like voodoo dolls or something that she found in these like curious shops. And uh, the last 
thing that she's about to write um, in her in her sentence there. It's like they're very interesting and like peculiar and unique. And then the next sentence she writes is, but be warned. And then the computer starts crashing. I was like, did she get cursed by a voodoo doll or something? I know. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, that's when Phil walks back in. Yeah, he's yeah. done with the dinner. And it's probably yeah, something to do with the electrical grid coming in and out. That's what's causing her right. computer problems right there. Okay. And I think maybe this is the scene where they this say is. like, two or three years yeah yeah yeah. they talk it over it's like are we are we are you okay with this honey like is this gonna work and they mentioned like this was an adventure like you said like this mm-hmm. is what uh we came for and uh the contract that phil is under is two years with a third as an option so i think they're signing off on that i wrote down in my notes that um you know they wanted to get out of la is what they said and michelle says you know i don't miss it uh, except for my friends and nyman's Newmans? Newmans? Ni- Nymans, I think. Nymans, all right. Which, I, I mean, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but that's what the subtitle said. And uh, I Googled it. I believe it's a clothing store. Nyman Marcus. Oh, Neiman? Neiman? Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus. Okay, I hadn't yeah. heard of that. Very popular uh, clothing brand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fashion. Um, all right, let's continue to the next scene with Phil or Michelle. Actually, the next scene kind of ties in closely to Ed, but we can save that for Ed's plot line. So what's the next scene? I think it's Michelle with the raccoon. Right. Okay, yes. Another uh, example of animals um, interfering with Michelle's habitation here. Um, She's kind of walking around the house looking for something. The computer's in the background, and Ed enters the house. And Michelle tells Ed that she's looking for her computer key. Did you ever have to have a key to turn your computer on? No. I mean, what kind of computer is she using? Is she using like a Commodore 64 or something? No, it's a Macintosh. It's It's got like the little Apple logo, the colorful one. But um, I feel like that's like a very business thing. You know, like if you're trying to keep your files safe. But uh, I mean, she's just writing for like a journal or for just like a travel magazine or something. No, the way I was interpreting it was like the key turns the machine on. Yeah, but they kind of lock it. They lock the power so you can't turn the machine on with the key. Um, I've seen them in the context of, like, uh, security for, like, businesses and stuff with personal information. Oh, wow. Maybe there's a lot of personal information stored on uh, their computer. But, yeah, I just feel like (laughs) it's like, um, dang it, like, just break the lock maybe. I don't know. But um, turns out as uh, Michelle is walking around the house, before Ed enters, there's, like, a raccoon that scurries away. I think it's funny. She's like, uh, oh, Ed, I'm sorry. There is an animal in the house. And he's like, oh, that's okay. Um, but it was a raccoon. Um, she describes, like, a, you know, that she's missing this key and he's going to help her look for it. And um, he says, was it shiny? Well, the, the raccoons like to, uh, you know, gather shiny things and take them away. So we enter this uh, fun little sort of scavenger hunt with Ed and Michelle looking for the, the stolen computer key. Yeah, I think this is where the thesis of the episode lines up because they have a conversation where they're walking alongside the riverbank where Ed talks about the differences between a raccoon, which Helen misidentifies as a rodent. And Ed says, no, 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 it's a carnivore. Mm-hmm. It's different from that. It's not okay. a rodent. But here's something that is curious about a rodent. Their teeth. 
they have to keep gnawing or else the teeth will grow and it'll get into their brain and it'll kill them. Yeah, they and grow think, like upwards. Right, it'll grow upwards. And I think that's heavy subtext for the idea that like you have to keep challenging yourself. Hmm. You have to be confronted with obstacles and overcome them. So your teeth has to keep gnawing right there. And yeah, you gotta like cut your teeth is the expression. Right. I like that. Yeah. No, yeah. Right, right. And I, I think that it leads down to that climactic scene where they're trying to find her key. Ed finds his, I want to say it was like a bottle opener. Yeah, it's like a Sundance bottle opener that I guess he had been missing for some time, but it's shiny just like the, uh, the computer key. Right, and Michelle finds her key. Right. But the important thing is that it's not Ed that gets it for her, it's Michelle that gets it. And not only that, she has to go into the water and then submerge herself, which, you know, that is an yeah. absolute big... <laughs> You know, that's a baptism. That's a welcome exactly. to Sicily. Exactly, yeah. Um, so it's funny because Ed, we'll explain it. Don't worry, we're going to get to Ed's plot line. But he has a cane in this scene. He's walking around with the cane. And he's like, oh, I think I can see your key deep right there in the water. And he's like, uh, okay, well, yeah, I guess, I'll, I guess I'll go get it. And he starts to take his jacket off. And she's like, no, 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 I'll get it. It's my key. And he's like, are you sure? I, I don't mind. I'm going to go get it. And he's like, no, 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 you've got your, you've got your, your, your foot is injured. Uh, I'm going to go in and get it. And she, I guess without really fully realizing what she's going to have to do, as you said, Charles, like fully submerge, it gets to the point where she's reaching her arm into the water and she's like, just her neck is above the surface of the water. And she's like, I still can't reach it. So she plunges. And yes, exactly what you said. I have it written in my notes. It's a baptism, a total, uh, you know, welcome to Sicily moment. And, um, yeah, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's gonna fully like alleviate all of her problems with Sicily, but I think that's definitely like a step forward for her. You know, she was maybe uncertain about it at first, but I think she comes away from this scene with nothing more, at least like a uh, a closer friendship with with Ed. Yeah, now she is cutting her teeth. She's gnawing it down. She yeah. is gonna become one with Sicily. And then I believe I think that's kind of the last time because we do see um, as they walk back, they return. They've got the key, the computer key. They get back to, uh, now it's Phil and Michelle's cabin. And uh, Phil has just got back home. He's, you know, he's, he's tending to his car, which we'll get to. Promise we're going to do Ed in a second. Um, and she says, what happened to the car? What happened to you? You're like soaking wet. You know, Michelle excuses herself inside. And Phil has like a uh, short little moment with, with Ed here. Uh, but I think we can get to that. Should we go ahead and talk about Ed's plot line since we've been hinting at it so much or yeah we, we can I, I okay. think that about wraps up Phil and Michelle's line yeah right here. basically what I was trying to say is like that this last scene the last time that we see Phil and Michelle it's pretty much just them getting home and there's some stuff that they talk about with Ed or Phil does but we can get to that I guess now maybe we start talking about what's going on with Ed in this episode yeah let's rewind it all the way back to the top where Ed is singing a little ditty and he's cooking dinner he's trying to cook a what is that, like a trout? Yeah, I, I had wrote down like he's pan frying fish. Later he tells uh, Phil that it was he was cooking some trout and he sprinkles like some nuts on top of the fish. Almonds. Almonds, yeah, we get a closer look. In a close up, it's uh, sliced almonds. Did you catch this? Like there's like uh, some moments when Ed is sort of getting ready, like grabbing the fork and knife and he's about to dig in and then he hears some sort of noise off to the right and the camera pans really f quickly to 
I think an open window or just a window. And then it pans quickly back to Ed. He also like looks at the fish and we see like the fish's eye, like staring up back at him. What did you make of that sequence? Uh, some sort of like Sicily, you know, tomfoolery right there. Like as per usual, some sort of magical <laughs> element that's happening. Yeah. That, that reminds me of, um, there was like a story that my mother used to tell me and it, it was a story about how robbers could differentiate between a rich person's child and a poor person's child. And what it was was that like they would abduct these robbers, they would abduct a bunch of children and then they would cook a fish for them and it would be presented in the same way that Ed had his trout. Okay. And whichever child reached for the eye was a child that came from wealth and that was the one they could use for a ransom because <laughs> apparently like only like children that came from well-off <laughs> families would eat the eye as a delicacy. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> so Ed views this as a delicacy here. He says later he was very hungry. Um, I didn't really fully clock it at the beginning here, but I think it makes sense now thinking back to it. That sequence with all the pans, Ed is like looking at the trout, he's looking at the open window, something has entered into his house and perhaps even like, you know, if it's a spirit or something, entered into his open window and then entered into the trout on his plate and then later will be eaten by Ed. Um, but we'll get into that in just a moment. The next uh, kind of interesting sequences that we see with Ed, he's uh, rushing over to his job at Ruthann's store. There's a couple of kids that are running down the sidewalk playing and they nearly bump into Ed. He opens the door to go into Ruthann's store and nearly bumps into Walt, who's walking out with a pink flamingo uh, lawn ornament. And then uh, as he's making his way into the shop, uh, he, uh, I don't think it was his fault, I think it was more Ruthann kind of bumps into some water bottles and they kind of spill over. And she goes and, and you know answers the phone, the phone's ringing and it's her son, Rudy who's coming up for Thanksgiving. I don't think we met, we met Matt. And then Rudy is apparently like the trumpet player or something. Didn't she say one of her sons is like a musician or a poet or something? Yeah, something Some sort of artist. So, something that makes her proud, yeah, apparently. <laughs> not, not an accountant or not a business. Not a businessman. Yeah. Whatever, uh, uh, go I was going to say, whatever happened to those pink flamingos that we put on our lawn? I guess Where did those go? Yeah, I think some people thought they were tacky. And then now, Charles, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, they're kind of like, kitschy and hip now and actually one of the most successful uh, beers in New Orleans this brewery called Urban South has totally branded they have a beer called um, Paradise Park which features like a sort of tealish green uh, sort of light green can and like the pink flamingo design I mean it's fine I'm not a huge fan of that beer but they've totally like taken that image from that can and used it for very many uh, designs on other products I think it's coming back into popularity, the Pink Flamingo. Oh, wow. It's 90s, 90s fashion <laughs> coming back right there. I mean, we are wearing like, what, what is it? Like, um, like very oversized sweaters and pants. <laughs> we, you're wearing, we're both wearing Jinko jeans right now. And I'm just <laughs> 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 um, no, uh, yeah, this is a interesting scene. At first, I couldn't really remember what was going on. I definitely didn't remember this, but it's such an interesting little storyline but what I thought might have been happening was that Ed got like cursed by eating this fish because you know he almost bumps into these two kids running along the road he almost bumps into Walt and then uh, you know with Ruth Ann near him she she knocks over a bunch of water bottles didn't really know what was going on until the next time we see Ed 
And it's almost like the scene plays over pretty exactly. I was like, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a scene in between the first time we see it and the second time we see it. So our mind gets a little reset. We, we can't like really spot the differences. But I almost feel like when I was watching it, Charles, I don't know if you got this feeling. I was like, oh, crap, did the file mess up me or too. did it rewind? Yeah, <laughs> me too. I was like, oh, man. We've seen this. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> is this file corrupted? Are we ever going to even be able to watch this on the road and record? No, yeah, it's a very cool. I was like, oh, is this like a Groundhog Day episode? It's going to all like keep repeating. But what happens is uh, by the time he gets over to Ruthann, every, everything is repeated the same. When he gets to Ruthann, he's like, well, uh, you know, watch out for the water bottles. And she still inadvertently spells them. And he says to her, and tell Rudy hello. And she's like, what are you talking about? And she answers the phone and it's Rudy. So we kind of get the sense now that Ed has seen this already and kind of knows what's coming, but also can't really, this is something they talk about a little later, but it seems to be out of his control because he tries to stop Ruthann from knocking over the bottles and it doesn't work. Um, maybe if he got a third shot at it, it might've worked. I don't know. That's what I was thinking if it was like a Groundhog Day thing. But uh, at least at this point, it seems that Ed is powerless. Um, and as we find out later, I guess as I think Ed just assumes that he has the ability to see ahead into the future, right? Right. And that leads him to go visit the new town doctor for the first time. He goes and sees Phil and he explains his predicament to him. Says that, hey, I'm being haunted by, oh, what is that fellow's name? You're talking about, oh, yeah, sorry. He calls it Yaith. Well, it's interesting how he brings it up. He says, uh, he first says, how do you treat a broken foot? And Phil is like, well, let me see it. Like, we got to oh, look at right, this. Right, right, it. It might not be broken. It could just be bruised. And he says, well, it hasn't happened yet. What do you mean? What do you mean, like, it hasn't happened yet? I saw it in the future. And he explains, as you're saying, he ate, he, he's might, it might be the spirit Yaith. In the subtitles, it was written capital Y apostrophe E-I-L. And uh, Ed says it Yaith. And Phil repeats it Yaith. Um, some sort of spirit, maybe a raven, a shapeshifter, shape changer. But he explains to Philip, like, he ate this trout, only it was probably wasn't a trout, it was probably Yaith. And uh, he's like, I should have realized it at the time because I saw some funny stuff going on, but uh, I was pretty hungry and I'd already <laughs> heated up the, uh, the I'd already toasted the almond slivers, <laughs> so he just <laughs> ate it anyway. I thought that's pretty funny how, like, Ed maybe knew that he was about to eat a spirit and he was like uh i don't care this looks good he's like yeah. i'm gonna do it it just got drugged that's essentially <laughs> what just happened right here yeah is drugging him wow yeah and uh i can't remember if it's this scene but ed says like oh man i wish i could see like more into the future like different time zones yeah. like will grunge still exist will yeah. what was the first example that he's he like is yeltsin gonna make it yes will grunge yes. last i thought that was pretty funny I will say I really love this concept of like Ed being able to see into the future and they do explore some interesting ideas, which I guess we'll get to in just a second when he's talking with Chris. But unfortunately, I mean, we're jumping ahead, but we can talk about it more at the end too. Unfortunately, what happens in the end is just like this all passes. It's like kind of after he digests the trout mm -hmm. and it leaves the system, he loses the power. And I mean, nothing really comes of it except for just the musings on this topic of like, would could you if you had the power to, would you change the future? Let's, uh, let's at least talk about that now. We'll get into the next scenes with Ed and we can circle back to this idea of like, you know, it's a fun, a fun avenue for this episode, but I'm, I'm, a, to me, I'm afraid they didn't like have enough fun with it, you know? Um, but anyway, what I was getting at is Chris and Ed are playing pool. 
They're finishing up their game. They can see that Hayden and someone else are waiting to get the pool table. And we forgot to mention this, but the reason why Ed fears that he's going to have a broken foot is because he saw this vision uh, where Hayden uh, accidentally steps on his foot, Ed's foot. Um, and Hayden's a big guy. So Ed has lived this already, and he's asking for advice from Dr. Capra. Now, playing pool at the brick, Ed uh, is not able to focus fully on the game of billiards. He's watching Hayden just like across the room because he doesn't want his foot to get stomped. And he asks Chris, if you had the power to go back and change the future, would you do it? Chris says something like, well, you know, like uh, you don't want to change history. You don't want to accidentally do the sort of butterfly effect thing where you change one thing and everything starts slipping into a whole different sequence of events. It's funny, Ed says like, you know, if you could talk to Bruce Willis, you know, would you go back and tell him don't make Hudson Hawk? Or, you know, what What would you do in this situation? <laughs> yeah, and I can't help but feel that it's a little bit of a meta commentary on the show itself, maybe talking about the future Ooh, of it. Kind of like that. Yeah. Are you saying, like, would you end it now, or would you try to... Ch- what, what do you think they're trying to say about the show? I think there's a lot of different interpretations that you can go with this, but I think that the one that I was landing on was, like, like inevitably, Joel Fleischman is going to leave. I'm, I'm assuming at this point in the show they're having troubles with Rob Murrow. Because why else would you introduce these two characters? Why else would you have this yeah. plotline right here? So I think that something is going down right here. To me, I, I think it speaks to, like, maybe they're saying, like, you know, it is what it is. We can't go back and convince Rob Murrow to stay on the show. We can't be looking back. Is what Ed's kind of talking about being like, I'm, I want to change the past. It's like, he can't. I see. Yeah, it's already, I see what you're saying. It's like, because the there are a couple. Are in motion. Yeah, there's a couple of scenes where it also seems like, because Ed says it later, even if he tried, he couldn't like change fate. I don't think he tests that theory enough, but we just have to take him for, um, take him at his word because he's the one who experiences this. But it seems that Ed can't change the future. He can only see it. Um, and he even thinks about, in this scene, he talks about what if I could, but it doesn't seem like he can. That's good, though. Yeah. I mean, just to talk again quickly about Joel, Rob Morrow, we know back in, like, season four, uh, from what we've heard, the introduction of the Mike Monroe character was in a way to sort of, like, pressure... It seems like some people might suggest to pressure Rob and, like, his people to be like, you know, you're asking for too much, maybe a raise or whatever, a higher pay, negotiating your contract. You know, we're just going to, like, if you're going to do that, we'll introduce another character and sort of, like, try to, like, make you a smaller piece of the show uh, if you don't want to be as involved. And then by the time season six comes around, if that is true about season four and Mike Monroe... I think you're right. It's like they may realize at this point now that Rob, he hasn't officially left because he's in this episode, um, but he is leaving. So they're like, okay, we do need to fill the spot with something. Which, you know, Charles, uh, was that the right move? Should they have filled the spot? I will say with Phil and Michelle, I definitely don't feel like they're major characters in this series yet. And I don't know if they'll ever fill that. It feels interesting to see outsiders in this position in Sicily. I always, I liked watching them this time in this episode, just as uh, normal people from LA. Uh, they don't have too much flavor to them, you know? They're not like feisty like Fleischman. Uh, they're just normal, nice folks from LA who love Alaska, and we get to see what sort of imprint that puts on them. But they don't really feel like shapers and movers, and I don't know if they ever will, but 
sorry to keep, I'm going on and on. I just wanted to ask you, Charles. No, no, no. What do you think about, should they have even filled the gap or should they have just left it? The gap of Rob Morrow. I think that... Uh, what happens whenever you introduce these two characters is that it puts the town of Sicily more up front. Okay. Because yeah. now it's no longer centered on Rob Morrow's character, Joel Fleischman. Now it's sort of, the show is saying like, no, 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 the town is the main character. Yeah. You see how this character can leave and we just introduce a new person and the passage of time marches forward and we're getting new townsfolk to fill in where the old townsfolk left. I think it's trying to make that sort of statement. Now, Joel hasn't left yet, so I don't want to get too much into it, Yeah. but I think that it want to do that on purpose. Otherwise, if Joel left and no one came and filled in the hole, you would just feel that the town never recovered. But now with True. these two people coming yeah. in, you feel like the town is perpetual. I see what you're saying, yeah. And I guess we'll have a lot more to say as we stew with uh, Phil and Michelle a little longer. Uh, That's just something I was thinking of just in the moment. It's like, was it better to fill the gap or leave it open? And I think there's the jury's out so far, but we welcome Phil and Michelle so far. I like the idea of like filling that lost spot. Um, so the next time we see Ed, he's going to, he's got stepped on by Hayden. It does happen, you know, um, I think it's like right whenever Ed realizes like it would be bad to try to change the future. Well, whether he decides to or not, uh, he fails and it's, it doesn't matter. He gets his foot stepped on. He goes to see Dr. Phil. Um, oh my God, that's so funny. He's Dr. Phil. Did I not even just realize <laughs> that until just now? Dr. Capra, Dr. Phil. Um, so he, he's going and uh, good news is it's not broken. It's... Uh, kind of contusion, contu right? bad contusion, he says. So it's time for you to use a cane, at least for a little while. Try to take some pressure off of that foot. Avoid using it if you can. He says to Ed, you know, I think what's going on here, because uh, he wants to help Ed like in a psychological way, maybe that's what excites Dr. Capra. He says, I think what you've got is what's called a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, it wasn't that you saw this or you predicted that it would happen. It's that you actually fabricated it to happen. You thought it would happen, and uh, it was made real because uh, you were fixated on it. Yeah, it wheeled it into existence. Which is also kind of an interesting uh, perspective that Ed uh, accepts. I don't think he accepts it the way that Phil Capra was intending, but he's like, oh, interesting. Like, I, I have the power to will something into existence, as you're saying, Charles. This is the scene where he says, I realize that I can only see a couple hours into the future, not like oh, weeks or months. Okay. And he says, uh, you know, I, I have these so many questions, like is Yeltsin gonna make it? Will grunge last? It's just a funny joke. Um, oh, the way he ends the scene, do you remember? He's like, I don't. he's like, uh, oh, as he's leaving, he's like, you know, Leo's auto shop does great, excellent body work. He doesn't even say like, just in case you need it. He's just, he just flat out says that and leaves. And I don't know if Phil catches on, but as the audience, you understand, okay, Ed sees something about Phil's car. Something bad is going to happen to Phil's car. And uh, sure enough, Phil steps outside of the office, and there's this uh, sort of like truck with a bunch of beer kegs stacked in the back in the bed. And one of them comes loose and flies out, rolls down the street, and smashes into Phil's fender. Leaves a nasty bump. So uh, Ed's advice is uh, pretty well-timed at this point. And... We talked about the scene where he goes uh, and finds Michelle. They go searching for the computer key. Uh, he's got his cane while they're walking around the riverbank. 
they find uh, the key. Michelle has her baptism. And um, finally, they get back home. Michelle goes inside to dry off. And Phil is speaking with Ed about how he's doing. And Ed's like, you know what? I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about that because uh, it doesn't work anymore. I can't see the future. I think what happened is I ate the trout. It has passed through me, through my system. And uh, it's all back to normal. So uh, I don't know. My, my opinion was it, it felt I felt like they could have explored a little more um, into that. I guess there's only so many minutes and so many time they can give to each plot line. But um, to me, it just it was just exploring the idea of like, could you would you change the future if you wanted to? And then uh, I guess accepting the idea that fate is written out in that's, front of us or something. That's the tagline. And uh, what is that Disney film? Brave? I haven't seen it, but they say something like that. They, like <laughs> The reason I knew this is because like in the trailer, which played all the time in the year 20, 2013, I want to say. Okay. That's like the exact like wording <laughs> of it. It's like, if you could change the future, would you? Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I think that one of the things that wasn't really discussed a lot in this episode that they didn't focus on was Phil's fascination with Ed as a subject. Yeah. And he's kind of like really into the idea that like Ed is suffering some sort of... Um, mental a, problem yeah, or something, like delusion. Yeah, a mental problem. And... He says, like, oh, this isn't, like, some normal, everyday happenstance. Yeah. This is some bona fide, let's get down to it thing. Interesting um, case study or something like yes. that, right? We don't, yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, we don't really get, we don't really fully get, like, what's going on. And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think it really even matters. You know, that's what's upsetting about the Phil Capra even the stuff that's, like, about him doesn't fully matter. It's more about Ed. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I kind of forgot, like, why even, like, why does it matter that Phil is, like, taking an interest? And it's not even that, I don't know, it's more about it. Uh, I mean, it shows a little bit about Phil's personality. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, like, Phil isn't, like, an ordinary run-of-the-mill doctor. Oh, he wants exciting, strange, he wants strange outliers. Right, cases. right. Okay. So I think that's, like, something to give toward it. Hey, I mean, th I like that because there's a lot of opportunity to use a character like Phil in uh, in Sicily where there's going to be strange stuff happening every episode I think there's so many cows right now on so we're playing yeah, a, we're so. playing a game in the road trip where Charles is on the left side of the vehicle I'm on the right side and you count the cows that you can find and that's like the left side of the vehicle versus the right side you have to count out loud every cow that you see whoever has the most whichever side has the most wins and it's just been Charles for this whole time, Charles has been so many cows, and I don't really see many on the right side. But there is a, uh, uh, a sort of a saving grace, or there is a trick to this game, where if you're if you're running behind, if I'm on the right side, and if I can find a cemetery or a graveyard on Charles's side, uh, I can say bury your cows, and he has to start at zero. He has to go back to zero. The idea being, I'm going to be looking out the right side, trying to find my own cows, so I will miss the graveyard. But I haven't seen any graveyards i'm sure we've probably passed okay the driver says we've passed two. <laughs> oh well yeah we passed two on my side but uh charles just gets cows on his side i get cemeteries on yeah i got all the cows on that's a big sheriff <laughs> that's a, i'm sorry <laughs> okay we gotta get we gotta draw ourselves back into yeah we gotta go back the into the town of sicily rather than the town of wichita falls <laughs> yeah we're passing through wichita falls represent any listeners in wichita falls tell us your favorite um Cemeteries, where are they? <laughs> I need to find them. <laughs> um, okay, let's go back to the beginning of the episode because that basically um, 
finishes out Ed. And we're going to talk about the Sons of the Tundra, which is the name of this episode. It's kind of uh, a plot line between Hauling, I guess you could say Maurice too. There's a lot of characters in here, but it's mostly to deal with Hauling's, um, Hauling's feeling of uh, being left out of the club. And then I think it's very interesting how they... I wish they would uh, include it a little more, but I'm glad that they have enough of it here. Shelley's attitude towards the Sons of the Tundra Club. Right. So, yeah, to summarize on this plot line, we're going to have Holling and Maurice revisiting the relationship with one another, where Maurice is part of this established club called the Sons of the Tundra, which is an elite member, cream of the crop of what Sicily can offer, and it's exclusive. Exclusivity is the key word here. And Holling despite his many years in Sicily, is not a member. Despite being the mayor. Like I know. Walt Isn't is a weird? member, which I guess, like, maybe you could chalk it back to his, like, Wall Street days or something, because uh, it seems like it's ma- very many just, like, affluent people and politicians. We see, like, Senator Moncton, I think he's introduced as. Mm-hmm. So, Holling being a politician in his own right, you know, it's like, why is it, why was also, he never... I think f- I know why. Sorry, but go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, that place is, like, very... <laughs> Very white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, Lester Haynes, uh, thankfully, is kind of high, higher up on the board. But, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's all just white, old white men. Um, I think I know why Holling was not invited, at least for a certain period. Uh, was probably the falling out that we see in the very first episode of uh, Northern Exposure. Just That's like true. Holling and Maurice are introduced as enemies uh, because of Shelley. Um, but... No, we get to see um, Holling try to interact with this group of people, specifically through Holling, through their friendship now, and how he's going to try to uh, gain entrance into this club. Uh, there is a saying that we see here that the Sons of the Tundra use. I think frater, it's spelled F-R-A-T-E-R in the subtitle, which I'm guessing has something to do with fraternity, maybe, brother. It sounds like they're saying it like a French. Maybe it's Canadian or something. I don't know. Um, Quebecois. But they... they it's sort of a greeting they use, frater. Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. Fr- yeah. I think that's how they pronounce it. Basically, it's like, who is this? It's Maurice. It's uh, Lester Haynes. Isn't there a third person with him there? There is. Is it Gil? Is it that guy, Gil? Yeah, yeah you were yeah. telling me about Gil. He's, a, he's an actor that has been in, uh, he was in Dinner at 730 as a caterer in Joel's Manhattan, uh, sort of like alternate reality. He's... Uh, in the episode with the lady and the fox hunt, what's that called? It's the episode we had Moose Chick on. I cannot remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't either. I can look it up right now. Oh, it's so far so good. Of course. Okay. I just I, the only thing I think when I think of that title, I only think of the Joel plot line there. But it does include the fox hunt. Anyway, uh, this guy uh, who's who plays Gil in this episode today. In uh, So Far So Good, he's like one of Lady Anne's friends or Maurice's friends who's like kind of uh, drinking wine with Maurice, doing like fancy things. Uh, but he is a recurring cast member. I don't know if he's always going to play the same character, but maybe uh, maybe he's reached his final form here as Gil Lafleur. Um, but they're sitting around having sort of an informal meeting of the Sons of the Tundra, and Maurice is announcing that Phil Capra's going to be coming to town, the new doctor. Can I invite him to our, like, sort of uh, dinner, our, like, little meeting that we're going to have soon? 
And they all agree that he's invited to uh, as a, sort of an introduction to Sicily. They do, but they also note a point that he's not going to be inducted as a member. He's just there as a guest. And that brings us to the next scene where Holling goes to Maurice and says, you know, I recall a number of years ago where you thought that you were going to sponsor me and I was going to become a member of the yeah. Sons of the Tundra. And then Maurice tries to backtrack a little bit right here. And in my mind, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think that he's trying to say, like, I don't want you to be here hauling because I dislike you. I think, in my mind at least, it's like, have you ever had one of those situations where, like, you knew, like, the other person was just, like, not a good fit? Not like they were a bad person or anything like that, but it's just like they weren't going to be a good fit for the environment yeah. in which they were trying to get into. Yeah, right Maurice here. has an instinct here that it's like, uh, Holling, you don't want to do this. It's not like it's not for you. You wouldn't have fun. But it does turn by the end of the scene. Again, like maybe there was a time where it was malicious, but I agree. I don't think Maurice is trying to be exclusive it, to, to hurt, like to um, prevent Holling out of uh, any, any sort of like ugly meat me way. Yeah, it almost seemed like he was protecting Holly. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. like, I, I don't think you should be involved with this type of business. But then, you know, Holling's like, hey, you know what? It's fine. I'm, I'm sorry I asked. I'm sorry I put you in this difficult spot. And Maurice relents. Maurice is like, you know what? You're right. We're friends. We've been friends for a long time. I should have done this a long time ago. Yeah, I think Maurice, um, I think he realizes after just thinking about it for a second that he is really close with Holling. And, like, why wouldn't it be nice to have my friend Holling uh, come to, you know, be part of this group? And, um, you know, maybe I was wrong. I'm Like, maybe Maurice is saying maybe I was wrong and maybe he would be a good fit. Like, maybe it could be very nice for him. And as we see, like, it doesn't really go too far, uh, but there are moments, you know, where it does make sense because Holling is um, the owner of the brick. It's like a little, it's in a small town, but it does pretty well. Like, it's kind of a very important fixture in Sicily. Uh, it makes a lot of money, a lot of townsfolk go there. So why can't he um, associate with other business people in the area? You know, why is he excluded? He's he's uh, making an impact in his community. Right. And that's what leads us to the next scene where he goes home and Shelly is getting prepared for the... What do they call it? The sewer dinner? Sewer dinner. Yeah, I wrote it down. There yes. we go. That's what it's the called. The sewer dinner. She's getting all dressed up. And Holling has to break the news to her that actually the sewer dinner is stag only, meaning it's exclusive to men. She says, so you get all GQ'd out just to hang out with the other guys? He says, that's pretty much it. Yeah, we're just going like, to get dressed up and hang out. And... Um, Initially, I think her response is like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. I, I think you might be able to read some tone of, um, you know, she feels a little hurt, a little left out. You may be able to read a little bit of that here, but I don't think it's too apparent until uh, some later scenes. At first, I was just kind of like, oh, Shelly's cool with it. You know, she's fine with being left out. But um, for good reason, she uh, bucks against it a little bit later. Uh, the next time we see... Uh, Holling is coming home. He's like hanging up his uh, jacket in his house, and Joel, Joel Fleischman, is sitting in a oh, chair right, in the living room, right, right, like right. waiting for him. Uh, he's playing around with this knife he calls the Kanai toothpick. It's a very fancy-looking uh, hunting knife, and um, you know, Holling, of course, is surprised to see Joel here. Uh, but Joel's like, "Hey, I really like this knife. I need a new skinning knife. I broke mine." on a buck, like trying to skin it or prepare it or something. 
So I figured uh, this is a very nice piece and you're not a hunter anymore hauling. So maybe I could uh, offer you a barter. Maybe, maybe I could find something you really like. And I think it's funny. He offers him like a certain pelt or a hide and it's really nice, you know, and hauling is, uh, you know, I think he, I think it's more that hauling just doesn't know what to say. Cause he sees Joel talking about hunting knives with these pelts. And then Joel takes this uh, silence as being like, Oh, yeah, I guess the Kanai toothpick is really nice. You probably want a little bit more. So he gives him even more things to barter with. And I think he makes off with a nice deal uh, to get this knife. Thankfully, Holling says, well, do you have any messages you want me to send to other, like, you know, please, like, let me connect you back to this town that misses you. And I think he just says, you know, I wish them all well. I'm always open for consultation if you need. I guess they have to, you know, canoe up to Mananash to go talk to him. <laughs> but, um, but Yeah. Yeah, that's the only time that we see Joel Fleischman this episode. And I guess we can cut to this one before we cut to the sewer dinner itself. Okay. Because this relates back to Maggie. Maggie and Shelly, they're both at the ah, brick together. Yeah, yeah. And they're both talking about their woes with each other's respective men. Shelly talks about being excluded from the exclusivity that Hauling is having with the sewer dinner. And Maggie is saying, like, you know, it can't possibly be her fault that Joel's reacting in this manner. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. There's, um, there's, uh, it's one of those scenes where, like, Shelly's just talking about the sewer dinner. Maggie's just talking about Joel, but they're having a conversation almost, like, at the same time, even though they're talking about different things. Uh, but it is somewhat about the same topic. Uh, or I guess just, like, Joel is excluding the world, you know, uh, separating himself from the world, but by doing that, um, excluding anyone from, like, entering his heart, entering his uh, social sphere. He wants to be secluded, uh, protected from uh, all the friends he had for whatever reason. And um, Shelley rightfully is um, upset that just because she's a woman, she can't be allowed to uh, consort with uh, these important people. Like, why, why is she not important, you know, enough? You know, why are women not important enough to be part of this group? Or just the idea of a men's club, you know, seems so strange, so exclusionary. Um, we do see, well, I, let's talk about a little bit about the, um, the sewer dinner. Uh, when Holling enters with Maurice, they walk up to, um, I guess, what would you call that? Not like a bartender, but... Like a waiter? Like a waiter, I guess. This guy, like, dressed in some fancy waiter outfit. And Maurice orders a see-through, which is something I actually had never heard of, but it makes sense. He, he says to Holling, it's Bombay Gin on the rocks. They meet Senator Moncton. Uh, you know, they're kind of hitting it off. Later, there's like a barbershop quartet singing. And there's a moment when Gil Lafleur is sitting with Holling. They kind of have a moment alone. And uh, Gil asks Holling about the all-you-can-eat spaghetti dinners. You know, how much do you normally rake in? Like 120, 140 meals, you know, when you do those all-you-can-eat nights. And Holling says, well, on average, we do 190, which I guess is impressive to Gil. And so uh, Gil announces, like, I've been trying to start something with my business partner, this, like, uh, what, did, like what did he call it? Like, uh, not Long John Silver's seafood, but it was like Davy Jones's seafood oh, restaurant. Oh, yeah, something like that. Um, so he wants to open that, and he needs like someone that could help. Probably someone of uh, 
Hollings experience here. Yeah, it needs a third member to help partner with them in order to help run that side of the business right there. And overall, the entire dinner is a success for Holling. He gets to socialize with the senator, gets to be made a partner at this franchise, and he gets to participate in the acapella group that I haven't seen in, in there. Just like everything about this club just it's so like would you ever be a member of this club like willingly uh i probably wouldn't even be invited to this but but i was just gonna say yeah i mean at first it just seems like this is uh something that hauling wants because it has been kept from him so he really desires it because it's something he can't have um but then it does turn out to be true that he gets some pretty good like business uh, opportunities just by being part of the That's club. Why, which is, it reminds me. It reminds me so much of being a fraternity. Yeah, because a fraternity yes, is it. like only <laughs> you know it. only men can be in a fraternity, and though your grades drop a little bit, I, I think someone did a study <laughs> on that. They're like your grades drop a, like five percent, but the like the connections, connections you that you get. Yeah, and I think like the income that you get was increased by like thirty nine percent or something wow. like that yeah. once you graduate. So yeah, it's all about the connections that you're making whenever you're in that club. But it was just something about it which it was um, that type of high society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a little too haughty tighty. Um, no, I agree. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd ever be able to be part of this. But uh, I was just trying to say, yeah, like it seems like there it could be. At first, I was. I think also at the end, maybe Holling realizes that while it does, uh, this club could offer him greater income, greater success, I think the reasons that he wanted to be in the club were superficial, that he, he will eventually step away from it. He does go home later that night, and Shelly is up late watching Letterman, so she's been waiting up all night, and you could tell she's not in a good mood because he's like, you're standing in the way of the TV, Holling, and Holling's like, I just had the greatest time, and uh, he's kind of playing it like he's a little drunk, maybe, mm-hmm. like the actor. And at the end of his, like, sort of uh, rant about how much fun he was having, he's like, I wish you could have been there, Shelly. And she says, me too. You know, like, I couldn't have been there. It wasn't even possible because I'm a woman. They wouldn't let me go. Wouldn't it have been nice if I could have gone? And uh, I don't remember if it's this scene or something else, but she also brings Randy in. She's like, well, think about Randy. Like, don't worry about me. Think about Randy. Like, she's going to grow up into a world where she's not allowed to be part of the Sons of the Tundra. She's not going to have that sort of like success and fun that you have, at least not in that specific example. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that Shelly's bringing up by using Randy as the analog for the future. Saying like, yeah. you know, it's not about now. Just think about like, you're con- you're actively contributing right. toward this organization that- This way of wants thinking to, too? Yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like this way of thinking that wants to exclude. It purposely wants to be part of the upper echelon of society, the crust. And as, I mean, Holling, Holling is gonna feel this sting firsthand uh, pretty soon because he, ultimately will not be accepted. But we'll get to that scene in a second. Um, there is a scene with, uh, with, with Shelly talking about this to Chris, right? Where she asks him, like, do you think it's wrong that I'm not allowed to join the Sons of the Tundra? And uh, Chris talks about exclusion, discrimination. He says, if you think about it, like, when she raises her hand in class and little Jimmy raises at the same time, who do you think the teacher's gonna call on? It's hardwired into our culture. And, uh, you know, she's going to have a tough time. Little Randy's going to have a tough time in anything. You know, why do, why do we not see women at the top of Fortune 500 companies, things like that? And uh, he, he tells her that Groucho Marx joke. Uh, I wouldn't want to join any club that would have me as a member. 
I don't, I don't, I'm not in love with that quote. Wait, is Shelly, is this scene with Shelly and Chris or is this with Holling and Chris? This is this with, with Holling and Chris. Yes, this is with yeah, Holling and Chris. Yeah, because Holling says it later. Yeah. But sorry, about the quote. Yeah, I'm not in love with that quote because it's such a self-defeating one. Yeah, self-deprecating. Well, Groucho Marx. It, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's Groucho Marx and like, you know, it's, it's kind of like Ed where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, when you say that type yeah. of thing, you're like, well, then like no one's going to want to be with you then. Yeah, you say I, like that. I think uh, the I think it's just like a funny turn of phrase. But if you take it as a personal philosophy, which maybe Holling starts to take towards the end. Uh, yeah, I, I see it's kind of like a negative look on yourself, self-critical, perhaps. Uh, you know, that's the like the opening quote of uh, Annie Hall, movie Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, forget like why he uh, uses that. Oh, it's like. Yeah. Anyway, that's like in the opening monologue. Uh, and he maybe refers to it a couple times. And of course, um, I don't know if it's Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider or just like the room of Northern Exposure. But there's definitely a lot of Woody Allen references in this show. They were big on Woody Allen in the early 90s. But the next scene we got with Holling and or Shelley is a very short one. At the Brick, Eugene runs to Holling with a letter. He gets a letter. I think it's from the Sons of the Tundra, and Holling goes to open it, and um, we don't we don't get any reaction, so we don't know what it says. Was he accepted? Uh, was he turned down? But don't worry. Uh, we get a scene pretty short after where Holling goes to see um, Maurice. You know, I'm skipping a scene. I, I, I'm skipping a scene where it's like Maurice, Lester, Gill, maybe some other people, and there's a bunch of those like library green lamps you're talking about on the table Uh, the lighting's like very like soft yeah 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 they're they're basically vetting him yeah they bring and they ask hollings there so they're asking him questions you know can you afford the uh the fees because you know we do a lot of charitable things uh this this organization does a lot of charity Mm -hmm. and it turns out that you can't write it off because they want to keep it all off the books they want to keep it like pure like purity I see. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's like they don't want to bring in the government. They don't want to bring in the out. They're very selective of what outsiders they choose to bring in. Um, it's interesting. But regardless of this, Holling still um, says, yeah, I can do it. I can make this happen. This is going to work. As we said, he gets this letter from Eugene, and then he goes to see Maurice personally because he wants to know why he was rejected. And uh, he tells Maurice, you know, I know that this one person, his wife hates me, like, for spilling barbecue sauce. I told her how you could get the stain out, and I told her I would buy her a new blouse, but I know she holds grudges, and she will never let it go. And Maurice says, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't it. You know, the thing about this club is that uh, one vote holds, like, the veto power. If one person says no, then it's a no. And finally, Maurice admits to Holling that it was Lester Haynes who was the veto vote. Something about he had um, had some problems with the Huguenots, which I'm yeah, guessing the Huguenots. is ancestral Canadian or something. What, what is yeah, that? Yeah, it's like some old bloodline that Holling had. And now Holling is feeling what, you know, what the other shoe is. Because right. now it's something that's out of his control that is being used to exclude him. Right. So he's beginning to feel maybe what Shelley was feeling. And then just also the idea, not of Shelley, of Randy, perhaps not even of that, but the future. It's like, what do what kind of society, what kind of club do I want to be in? 
You know, I want to be in uh, something where I don't feel closed out. I feel like I have enough opportunity for myself and control in my own life and uh, freedom. You know, maybe he wants to express that to others too, but at least for now, he does take control in his own way. Uh, he, he drives a car up to the brick, this sort of old little van. What do you call that? Like, it's all, what kind of vehicle is that? It's like this old kind of, this is, I'm terrible with cars, but it kind of reminded me of like a PT cruiser, but just like old. It reminds me <laughs> of that car in Dumb and Dumber. You know the, that dog car? Dog? Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminds you? It's not a dog it looks like that. It looks <laughs> like it. It's got the shape. I guess. No, that was like more blocky. This one has sort of a bit of a, I don't know. We're going to have to figure out what this is. But it says kind of like hand painted. It says the brick catering, probably some other stuff on it. And he tells Shelly, who comes out to meet him, you know, I ended up buying this. Got it for like $550. Is that what he says? Yeah, $550. So $5,500. He says, don't worry because... I'm not going to have to spend that $2,000 on the Sons of the Tundra. I'm not going to get in it, but we have this now. Basically, what I'm trying to say here with this ending, what I think it's showing is that Holling decides, you know, maybe he wanted to feel this exclusivity. He wanted to be accepted there. He wanted his business to grow. And uh, he realizes he doesn't need the Sons of the Tundra to do that. He just needs to um, see himself uh, in this certain way that he wants to have this initiative to grow the brick and hopefully the catering company will work out. We'll see. He also s repeats the line to Shelly about the club that wouldn't want to have me as a member. Mm -hmm. And she's like, uh, well, that's hilarious. Did you come up with that with yourself? And he's like, I almost thought he was going to say no, but he lies and says, yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I did. What did you think about that? I mean, I guess you already disliked that quote. Uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> He's just trying to make up to Shelly. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. He's trying to keep It's her. overall a uh, sweet ending because, you know, instead of joining an organization in which Shelly and Randy aren't going to be a part of, now it's just the three of them, and they're going to try to depart on their own. And it all comes a full circle because the beginning of the episode, we have Phil and Michelle driving into town. The car's coming into the camera. And now, at the very ending shot, we have Holling, Shelly, and Randy driving away from the camera in their own car. Yeah, their new car. Never to return. Just kidding. Like, what if they weren't <laughs> in the next episode? And then just add, they introduce four more characters because they introduced two new characters. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You got to get four new characters right there right <laughs> at the end. Oh, man, that would suck. Um, no, they'll be back for the next episode, I hope. All right, Charles, we're back. We're no longer inside a moving vehicle. This is nearly a month later. Sorry, listener, that it's taken us this long, but April was a very long month of weddings and various celebrations, lots of travel, obviously, as you've heard earlier in this episode. Uh, but now we're back at our respective homes in our respective offices slash recording studios and uh, returning to Sons of the Tundra so that we can invite on a guest for this episode. Now, remember, Charles, as we said in season six, we're looking for fan commentary, fans of Northern Exposure to talk about this season. We've been asking online on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Reddit, anyone who enjoys the show and would like to give some commentary on an episode. We uh, specifically had someone ask about Terry Polo, specifically the, the character, the actress who plays Michelle Capra, uh, new to this series in this episode. So we have this fan, Stella, 
who was very interested in talking about Terry Polo specifically. And we asked her also to speak about season six and just her experience with Northern Exposure. So let's go ahead and hear what Stella has to say about Terry Polo, Michelle Capra, The Capras, Northern Exposure season six. Let's dive in and listen. Hi, all. I had asked about doing an episode with Terry Polo, aka Michelle Shadowski Capra, because I love her. And this is our introduction to her. I came by Northern Exposure through stores of yore, like strawberries and FYE coconuts, because I would see the like deluxe DVDs that had puffy vests on. It was like a bright orange puffy vest with like a zipper, um, literally not just an image of one and, um, super successful marketing. I just really, I had family in Alaska and I was like, sure, I'll try this. And I really connected with it as a gay weirdo. And I think it does go downhill when it stops being about what it's about. It's supposed to be about a doctor for the town. And when it stops being about that, I think it just isn't as good. Kind of like when 30 Rock stopped being about Liz running the show, it's just not as good. But I love it because it's got these death themes like Six Feet Under, except it's whimsical. I also love Six Feet Under. And it's got gays and feminism and Judaism. And it's, I think, still ahead of its time in some of the ways that it deals with sex because Ruth Ann talks about sex and she talks about relationships. And it's not played for laughs, which is very unusual for someone who's in that age group. And it's direct. I really love that. And I I think the way that they talk about Ed's first experiences without doing it too over the top. And I think Joel goes to his hit it and quit it conference and Maggie wants to get some there too. Is that, That's unusual. Just like having indigenous and native actors play themselves and disabled people play themselves. I love it. And so I'm a therapist and in therapy, we talk about to function well, we need to be in our wise mind. And our wise mind is when our emotion mind and our reason mind act together. And resolutions in TV and movies are often wise-minded. You get a blend where they come together and it's really satisfying. We see it in a lot of the characters in Northern Exposure. So like Joel is all reason mind and Maggie's all emotion mind, but we love them best when they're together because they balance each other out and you get this holistic thing where the gestalt of it, the two of them are just more together than the sum of their parts. And I think you see that in Shelley and Holling and Maurice and Barbara. The way that Maurice comes around, when, like when his mindset changes in a show or he comes around to something, I think that's also very wise-minded. You really see that balance come through in his character. But... I'm here to talk to you about Michelle Shadowski Capra, and thank goodness because the other plots are dull. I'm a white person, but that plot with Ed seems dangerously close to the magical Indian trope. There's weird sexism stuff with the Sons of the Tundra, and as Shelley says, those without a Johnny need not apply. I f- always forget that she calls penises Johnnies. And Dr. Capra is just the sophomore slump version of Joel. The geographic fix thing, as Charles has said, is total snooze fest. But the episode starts with a moose, and Dr. Capra has the appropriate response, which is to slam on the brakes. Where I live, we have signs on the side of the road that say, break for moose, it could save your life. And I've always wondered, who sees a creature 
that large in the road and does not slam on their brakes. Dr. Capra has done the right thing. You can also see in that scene, the person, there's somebody on the left side of the screen who's directing the moose. I'm not sure what they're doing, but uh, I was wondering if it was uh, Anne Gordon, perhaps. I also just, in this episode, love that Maurice wants to make Sicily the headquarters for the colorectal resort crowd. I love that there's these, a couple little kids, uh, like middle school age kids. We just never see children in Sicily. And I love that Walt is picking up a flamingo for his landscaping, which is dope. I have flamingos and I dress them up seasonally. I like to think that that's also what Walt is going to do with his flamingo. Michelle Shadowski Capra just has the best little through line in this episode. Terry Polo always plays someone whose face is perpetually communicating skepticism. Her eyes are just wide with wonder. She does a ton of acting with her eyes. I think most people probably know her from Meet the Parents, but she, she also did a Playboy cover. I think she gets pretty typecast in this perfect role that I think is exemplified in the West Wing. I think her first episode is Helen Santos, where she's eating melted ice cream in the kitchen late at night, and her husband says that he's been asked to run for president. Josh wants me to run for president. Of the United States? I'm pretty sure. She's both completely gobsmacked and nonchalant, and it is perfection. And that is exactly the vibe that she has, you know, years earlier in this episode, where she sees a frickin' raccoon flopping out of her office window. And I just can't believe that as gobsmacked as she is, she's nonchalant enough to just truck out there with Ed, who didn't knock, and uh, go magically find the key. And she's so uncomfortable, but she does the thing. It's She gets the key, and it's so admirable. And the character of Michelle is so understated, and I wish that they had really turned up the snap on her. But I think she is a really wonderful, strong woman. And I think, you know, in the same way that other characters were at the time with women of like Murphy Brown and Roz on Frasier and Buffy, Scully on X-Files, I'm not even sure that Michelle Capra passes the Bechdel test, though I think there's an episode she's in where she talks with Marilyn about the brick. And so maybe she does. But I just love that character. She's just full of wonder. And I can envision her in LA on her way home from Trader Joe's where she picked up some Snapple and she's sipping her decaf latte because she's a monster who drinks decaf lattes and reminiscing about her skiing trip in Vail. She's going to go home and have a glass of Chardonnay. I just love her. And I think she genuinely admires the people in the town. And maybe that's why she went into journalism, because she does have like a really human connection component to her. She should leave Phil, because he's kind of trash, but she's uptight and afraid of judgment and probably won't leave him at least for another few years or until Sicily has worked its magic on him. Thanks for letting us have such a lovely deep dive into this show, Lee and Charles, and I hope everyone can just Really love and appreciate Michelle Shadowski Capra. All right. That was the guest commentary for Stella. And right off the bat, she talks about how the DVD covers for Northern Exposure caught her eye. They were with these little puffer vests and zippers. And I think I've seen it before. I think I know exactly what she's talking about. They actually, as she describes, they actually have like a tiny little jacket. It's not part of the 
uh, face. It's like literally mm-hmm. a thing you have to zip up and zip off. That to is open so up cool. DVD. What <laughs> yeah. happened to DVDs like that, man? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, I, they, I think they only did it for like seasons one and two. I could be mistaken, but I uh, I know for sure with season one, it was like an, I want to say an orange parka. Maybe the second season was blue. I'm not sure. But um, Stella had mentioned like certain novelty stores. Like I'd heard of FYE, but had you heard of strawberries or coconuts? No. I, for, <laughs> for a while, I thought. I never heard of those. I thought she was talking about like. I don't know, like just like it was in the produce section or something. I was like, what's <laughs> happening here? <laughs> I, I'm familiar with FYE, so I'm assuming those other stores are like those. But Stella goes on to talk about just, you know, general thoughts of the show, like falling in love with this show. Uh, she describes it being very ahead of its time in many ways. Uh, the way it talks about sex, like Ruth Ann specifically. I'm trying to remember what that episode is, but I can remember there's a scene with like her sitting on a bench with Maurice and she's talking about how human sexuality is like wild and unfettered. And I think they're kind of talking about, this might've been Mr. Sandman where they have like the weird kink dreams. Oh like yeah. Has, yeah. Uh, has the, the shoe fetish or whatever. And I could be wrong, but that's like one example. There's many, I think uh, Stella also mentioned, uh, I think it's it happened in Juno when Joel wants to go to this medical like doctor's conference to get laid and they you know Maggie also is trying to get a date there they end up sleep almost sleeping together and then also just Stella talks about the wise mind which I thought was really interesting when your emotional mind and your reason mind are acting together you can reach the wise mind. And she describes how a lot of resolutions of like character arcs in a TV show, like an episode, it always comes together in the wise mind. Typically it's very common. And I thought it was pretty cool trying to envision or think about Joel as the reason mind and Maggie as the emotion mind. It's not, I don't know if that's always true, but that's very much their like sort of stereotypical relationship, how they're butting heads together. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's like, I don't know how true this is. Um, Like speaking of Sorkin shows, like I, I remember hearing it from the newsroom where apparently in Euripides plays in act one, the hero gets chased up a tree Act two, the people throw things at him while he's up on the tree. And then act three, he comes down from the tree. I'm not exactly too sure would you come out of this, like in the experience of being up the tree and then down the tree. Um, I think that like a hero circle is like a little bit better. Okay. Yeah, the structure. Yeah, most people have heard of that structure before. But like, yeah, that just got me thinking about that, about how you need to merge uh, these two qualities that Stella was saying, making them work in tandem. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean... Isn't that why we watch television in the end, though? Is that sweet, sweet resolution? Yeah. Because you know that it's coming. Like, good television is going to have that. You're not... That's what television writers are all about. Yeah, I guess we love to see that wise mind. We love, you know, if we don't even realize it, we love seeing that sort of compromise between emotion and reason coming to an answer that feels right to us, you know? Right. And she brings up a lot of television shows to... Uh, not necessarily to bolster her points, but mostly just to compare Northern Exposure to. So she uses a 30 Rock comparison. Uh, it's a little less flattering. She uses Six Feet Under. She said that mm. she had loved that show. And she used a West Wing one. Yeah, I loved... She uh, even got the uh, soundbite. There's a little soundbite in there of, I'm, I'm assuming that's Terry Polo's 
first appearance in the West Wing. She plays a character. You've you've already talked about this, Charles, mm-hmm. but Helen Santos, the wife of this man who's going to be running for president, I think. And um, now I I've watched the West Wing because you and some other friends had recommended it so much. Love that show, but I've only seen the Sorkin series, like the the seasons one through four. And I know that Charles, you love. Um, the fifth and sixth seasons for their, I think for the Santos character, right? Yeah. Well, season six and seven, he's not introduced till then. That is when he is running to be on the democratic party ticket. And then I don't think it's like much of a spoiler, but what I mean to say, like (laughs) running for president against the Republican nomination right there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that is indeed her first appearance right there. Terry Polo, like she mentioned is kind of typecasted and she's got this harangued look to her. Like a furrowed <laughs> brow. And I totally agree with her. She totally does. Because when you see her in like almost all of her scenes in the West Wing, it's like kind of, even if she's not trying to be skeptical, she's got that look to her, which is what aids her. It helps her deliver the lines. Yeah. But like, you know, like the lyrical dialogue that comes from a show like that, that type of look is just wildly beneficial to it. And I think she's like a very comfortable, easy fit to like slip into Northern Exposure here. That actress, uh, Terry Polo. Yeah, she's great. I mean, she's got that, she's got a great look. Like her manner of speech is like really, I I think, great to listen to. And uh, Stella describes Michelle Capra as a wonderful, strong female character. Though I also, I wrote this down. Does Michelle pass the Bechdel test? And Stella says... She might like in, in, in later episodes, she's talking with like Marilyn or something about the brick and Charles, we've seen a couple more episodes already with Michelle Capra. So there might be some moments that I could say she, I'm trying to think if it's like a whole, if throughout the whole episode, would she pass the Bechdel test? I honestly, I can't think of a scene right now of her speaking with another female character and it's just the two of them. I think there's definitely like some scene in the next episode with just her and Maggie. I mean, it's in like a room, like a, it's in the beginning of the episode where there's like a party. So there's a lot of people around, but but we'll save that for the, we'll be talking about that for sure on the next episode. Um, So that, I mean, that moment could pass, I think um, potentially we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye out for that. (laughs) Um, But I mean, yeah, I love the Michelle character. I thought it was funny. Stella imagining Michelle, like the Los Angeles Michelle and she describes like going to pick up some groceries from Trader Joe's, drinking a Snapple, which actually she does drink Snapple. She drinks Snapple yeah. in <laughs> one of these episodes that we watched, um, things like that. And uh, a really interesting look into the character so far. Also, this is important to note, Charles, just from this episode, Sons of the Tundra, we only know very little, I think, about Michelle and Phil. And I think it does become a little more apparent. We get to look deeper into them as we go a little further because Charles, as I already mentioned, we've watched a couple more episodes and I'm excited to see if it does go a little deeper. But just from this one episode, I think Stella pointed out a pretty interesting uh, bit of her character, how she has this admiration for the people of the town of Sicily and she's always looking for maybe a human connection. We kind of see that in some of her scenes and how this could fit well with her 
trade of journalism. You know, I thought that was a pretty interesting observation. Yeah, I definitely agree. I like Stella's pickup on the flamingos. Mm. And apparently she <laughs> decorates them herself too. Yeah, like a seasonal lawn ornament. You know, one of uh, one of our friends, former guest on the pod, Brody, has, I don't think it's a flamingo. I think it's like a goose or something or like hmm. a duck decoy that they will dress in different costumes for like they go on it's funny because i just remember them being like we found this like kids halloween costume on amazon and it like fits the goose or whatever so they always like will buy seasonal kids costumes and put it on there (laughs) put it on their uh lawn ornament who were we talking with that also had a flamingo because okay so like we prefaced (laughs) earlier this is being recorded like one month one month (laughs) since the original recording but I remember us talking about flamingos. Like yeah, in the car, we were like, kept coming up. Yeah. Yeah. We were like, oh, sweet. There's like flamingos. And we talked about how kitschy they were. And then on the preceding days that followed at the wedding, somebody also brought up flamingos, like ornamental yeah. lawn flamingos organically. Do you remember that or no? I don't. I do remember though, when we were in the car and we were recording, we were talking about how they're coming back in style. So, I mean, that's just, I mean, uh, just a couple days after we recorded that in the car, apparently we were talking to someone who is decorating their lawn <sighs> with flamingos. Bader, Bader Meinhof, man. Bader Meinhof <laughs> exactly. phenomenon. Uh, this is interesting. Stella says that Michelle should leave Phil. What do yeah, you think about that? I, mm. <laughs> I like Phil enough, but it's kind of obvious in this episode when we're introduced, you know, Chris's giving all these accolades for Phil and he doesn't say anything about uh, Michelle. And it takes Phil a moment to be like, wasn't that like, well, first Phil is like, oh, wasn't that like a great introduction? And then it takes him a moment to be like, well, you know, he didn't really say anything about you, Michelle. He should have mentioned how you're a wonderful journalist, you know? Right. So well, maybe like, he's kind of not so aware of her. I don't, I don't know. Well, uh, wives do get their careers overshadowed by their husbands Probably doubly so if their husband's a doctor. And especially in this period of like this era. And that's kind of one of the themes of this episode is talking about how, you know, the men will overshadow right, the right. women throughout life. Exactly. And Stella had commented a little bit about that plot line, like the three plot lines in this episode. There's sort of like the sexism with the Sons of the Tundra and also add sort of what Stella said, like the um, nearing magical Indian trope, you know, it's just like um, of the three, she favored the Terry Polo, um, the Michelle Capra plot line, which is a good one. I think like the sort of baptism in the river, something I do want to talk about before we wrap it up though. And if you have more things too, we'll, we'll definitely tack them on. But uh, Stella pointed out a goof that they noticed, um, well, she talks about in the very beginning when Phil and Michelle are driving, they do run into a moose. And apparently wherever Stella comes from, there are they actually have street signs that say, break for moose, it could save your life. And Charles, I mean, I've seen like, I've definitely seen like deer crossing and deer signs down here, like even in Louisiana and up north. Have you ever seen anything like, I've seen turtle crossing signs as well. I think even in our hometown of Lake Charles or a little bit outside of Lake Charles, I've seen some turtle crossing signs. Have you seen anything like a gator crossing sign? I don't know if I have. I, I, I've i seen... Seems stereotypical, okay. but... I, I've seen not gator crossing, but like 
there are gators in the vicinity yes. of this area. Please be <laughs> mindful. And I always thought that was funny because when I was growing up, I thought depictions of Louisiana were like, everyone thinks we have like an alligator as a pet and like there's always running around. And I don't know, for some reason as a kid, like I definitely saw alligators, you know, but I didn't, I feel like as I've grown up, I see them more now, like on highways. That's a thing. Like you'll see like an alligator randomly on the highway sometimes or like on a back road. But as a kid, I never used to see that. And I thought people were overreacting. And I mean, they definitely were sort of stereotyping Louisiana with gators, but I, I think there's some sort of like wildlife explosion happening right now, mm. just in Louisiana, at least in our area, because there is an explosion of water snakes. Oh wow, what is very strange. Could have something to do with the eroding coastline and how. Oh, that's true. <laughs> they're just like not going to have a habitat anymore. Uh, we're not going to have a yeah Louisiana anymore. But um, anyway, let's. Uh, oh, I this was what I wanted to get at was Stella noticed this goof that there's someone. If you watch this scene, it happens at about one minute and 30 seconds um, into the episode where imagine it's like the camera's in the backseat of the car looking out the front windshield and you're kind of looking over Phil and Michelle's shoulders out the front windshield and there's a moose standing right in front of them. Well, Stella noticed like off to the left of the frame, there's like someone standing there kind of moving around. It looks like they might be in like a windbreaker or like a rain jacket. And this is, I would assume this is the animal handler. This is probably Ann Gordon uh, off screen trying to guide the moose. I remember when we had interviewed her, Charles, she mentioned how when they shot the opening title sequence for Northern Exposure, she was like not very far off camera with some sort of like leaves or something that the moose likes to eat. You know, she was to be like right off the edge of the frame trying to get the moose to, you know, walk this way or that. But um, this is very interesting. That little goof, I noticed um, uh, it's, it's, you can see it on the Blu-ray, as I mentioned at like one minute and 30 seconds. But if you're watching on the DVD, at least the version I have, they've changed that shot. They did some sort of like, you know, matte cover, like Photoshop effect or something. It's almost looks like a completely, not completely, but it is a different shot. And I'll have to, um, I'll post like an image link or something in the episode description. So you can kind of compare the Blu-ray to the DVD. But the only thing I could think of is like, maybe this was an effect that they did for broadcast. And as I was describing before, Charles, with these Blu-rays, a lot of times any sort of effects shot if you're watching the Blu-ray, the quality just like dips back to video because back in the day, they probably weren't doing the effects and then transferring it back into film. They were doing the effects all digitally on video and then they would just ship that off to broadcast on TV. There's no reason to print it back onto film. Whereas the Blu-rays, they're pulling all their, I guess they're restoring, um, you know, rescanning the film to get high quality 1080 Blu-ray but if it's an effect shot that just doesn't exist on film, they use the old video. So I don't know what they used. Maybe they used the, maybe what's happening on the DVD is what they did was they just like, like I said, like Photoshopped it, matted it off so that they cut out the side of the frame where Ann Gordon would be standing. So you just see like a still background and you see the moose on the right, you know? Oh, okay. So if I'm picturing this correctly, what you're saying is that like, it, it's got the same setup. Left side is Phil, right side is Michelle, and then further right outside of the car is the moose. Mm -hmm. But what they did is that 
they took the full ride side, which is including the moose and Michelle, kept that the same. It's like mm-hmm. absolutely the same. Then the left side, it's like they took the photo and just tore it in half. And then they mm-hmm. taped like uh, one that doesn't have that man trying to lead the moose. Yeah. They just put in like a new shot of just Phil in the driver's seat so that together it creates a shot where you don't see the guy trying to guide the moose mm-hmm. and you get all three principal subjects in the shot. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It kind of looks like, oh, I know, I, I can tell that the left side is frozen, at least Phil. He's like a, he's a freeze frame. Whereas the right side, Michelle moves a little bit. It's the back of her head. So we can hear she, she might have a line. So she's moving and talking, but we mm-hmm. don't see her lips. And then the moose is obviously moving, kind of approaching the car, I think, like getting a little closer, but still outside the car. I think that's what they did. Yeah, I think they just like cut it, like you're saying, did a freeze frame on the left side and then left left the movement on the right side. That's what draws your eyes anyway. That is so cool. But I will say I didn't I didn't notice that animal handler off screen when we were watching it. I, I only noticed it because Stella pointed it out. All right, Charles, well, that does it for Sons of the Tundra. And thank you so much, Stella, for writing us. I'm really excited that you were very excited about Terry Polo in this show. And uh, and I'm happy that we have a Terry Polo stan out there listening uh, to the podcast. Yeah. And that, you know, people, I you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear that fans of Northern Exposure like this character. At least uh, Stella's representing that. Um, Charles, we're going to be back next week to talk about the 10th episode of season six of Northern Exposure. It's called Real Politic. And you've already seen this episode, so I can't ask you what do you think is going to happen. But we're going to be talking all about it next week. Uh, we've already kind of spoiled. There's like a scene with Maggie and uh, <laughs> Michelle. Perhaps it passed the Bechtel test. Uh, listener, definitely look out for that. But Charles, I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Stella for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you'd like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.